I hope you're all having a good summer. For those of you that could be visiting with us today, uh, I'm Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. And again, like I always say, it's my privilege that I get to share scripture with you this morning. And so this morning, folks, we're going we're gonna to dig right into this. So we should open our Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We've been uh, working through the book of Philippians over the, the summer months, probably over the past six to eight weeks, basically. We've been spending the summer working through Philippians. And if you uh, need to get caught up, if you don't know uh, some of the things that I may reference today that are from past sermons, uh, all of, everything is online in video and in audio, and so I do encourage you to, to go back and to catch up. Uh, when you're able to, because I just don't have time to give you a recap or we'd be here forever. So let's dig in uh, to Philippians chapter 2. So Paul is going to continue uh, with the discourse. Don't, don't let the header in your scriptures mess with you. He's continuing in a similar theme, and you're going to think that that's weird when you hear this, but I'll unpack that for you. He said, uh, I hope in the Lord Jesus Christ I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I received news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. Remember, he's in prison and he's facing a trial. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and he almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and may may have less anxiety. So then, Paul says, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor, people like him. Because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourself could not give me. How many people read that passage and first of all question, how on earth is that following in the same flow of thought as what we talked about last week about not grumbling? How does this actually connect together? And A lot of us, maybe we would be honest with ourselves and actually admit that when we read things uh, like this, what the theologians actually call a travel log, uh, when we read a travel log like this, we tend to just go, eh, I don't need to read that list of names. I don't need to read that. I'll just graze over that and I'll get into the important quotable, tweetable things that are in Philippians. And so often we avoid things like these travel logs, this information that Paul is giving us, and we miss completely the richness of what he is actually doing here in this letter. A lot of scholars believe 
that this travelogue is actually a core piece of understanding the book of Philippians. Now, that's interesting because we, we pass it, but Paul is actually continuing with his theme about godly character. And so why would Paul place these passages where he does? Now, if you know anything about the patterns of Paul, usually these travel logs, which are in most of his books, usually these travel logs are actually placed at the end. So why in Philippians is it actually placed right smack dab in the middle of his book? It's really simple because it flows. It works that way because it's linked to what he's talking about above. He is now trying to, first of all, communicate. Communication's important, and he's trying to communicate to another church. It's difficult at that time. He couldn't just send the Philippian church a text message or a Facebook message or a Snapchat or whatever. He had to communicate somehow to this church, and it was done through letters. The church was a supporting church of Paul. Paul's a missionary. He's on mission. And he wanted to extend thanks to the church and outline his plans. Here's what's going on with me. Here's what I think might happen. And here's what I'm going to do next. I'm planning on sending you Timothy. I'm going to send back to you Epaphroditus. Now, there's a couple nuances uh, to this. Paul is going to send Epaphroditus back to them earlier than they would have expected. So Paul uses this communication as a teaching moment. A real-life example, so to speak, is what Paul is giving us here. Folks, what we got to capture and what we're going to capture today is that these men, in this context, it's these two men, exemplify what Paul said in Philippians 1.5. They're partners in the gospel. And and God has begun a good work in them. And he's carrying this good work out. Verse 6 of chapter 1. These men show us what it looks like to have affection for Christ's church. Verses 7 to 8. And we could also say that they illustrate exactly what it looks like to live worthy of the gospel. Verse 27. So as we journey through today's texts, I want you to keep in mind this one text that Tamil shared with you in the week that she spoke. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 4, this is the overarching theme. This is the text. If you're going to get anything out of this, this is the text that you need to understand in order to understand Paul's train of thought. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility... Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Timothy and Epaphroditus are living examples of what Paul has been teaching us throughout the book of Philippians. It's beautiful how Paul does this. He gives you teaching, he he pumps it into your head, and then he says, oh, you you probably want to know what this looks like. Well, meet Timothy. He's a living example of everything I've just talked about. Meet meet Epaphroditus. He's He's your messenger. He's from you. He's part of your community, and he's a living example of everything that I've been 
talking about. It's beautiful what he does. Sometimes we get so stuck on the head, the tweetable things in Philippians, and we completely miss the practical pieces of Paul saying, if you want to know, here it is. And so he's going to give us some traits. Paul, Timothy and Epaphroditus, they're, they're humble. They're other focused servants who provide a shining example of working out their salvation in practical acts of serving without grumbling. Now, one of the commentaries that I was reading as I was working through uh, these passages, uh, he talked a lot about the joy that's found in the book of Philippians, but he used an acronym, which usually I quite tend to make fun of, but I, I re- you know, like an acronym, you know, J for this, O for this, Y for this, but we're going to use one today, uh, because, uh, except I'm going to quote him. Uh, except I don't remember his name. (laughs) But this is not my thought. He says, joy comes when you get things in the right order. Jesus, then others, then yourself. Joy. Jesus, others, yourself. Now, I, I love this passage in Philippians that we're going to deal with because Paul uses real, broken people like you and I as examples of what he's been talking about. He uses everyday people, broken people just like you and I, as examples of what he's been talking about. He shows us that what he teaches the churches can be truly lived out he has real-life examples beyond himself. And so let's, uh, t- let's start digging into this passage for sake of time. I'm going to try to give you a uh, short sermon today. How's that sound? I, if, we, if we land in two services, I need to practice, right? So I might as well start now. So Paul begins by telling the church that he is not going to send Timothy to them yet, but that he is going to send him once he knows the fate of what happens with his trial. Now, this is probably because Timothy is actually a key support for Paul during his trial. They they believe that maybe Timothy was even a witness on behalf of Paul and was needed to stay there to to, uh, testify on Paul's behalf. But he says, if the verdict is good then he intends to send Timothy to them right away. And he says that he hopes that, and he's confident that he will too himself come in person. Now, I want you to notice a couple things that Paul gives us. He gives us two key things to consider about Timothy. The first is Timothy's compassion, and the second is his companionship. Paul says that, that he, he knows no one else that is as like-minded as Timothy is. In other words, Paul feels that Timothy is the only person he knows and trusts to represent him to the church in Philippi. Now, you've got to remember what's happening in the church of Philippi. Remember, I brushed on it last week. They're grazing into conflict. Even though this is a wonderful church that Paul loves and and it's a, a successful church, they're grazing into conflict, more than likely conflict between the church and the church's leaders. 
And so he has to, and I established last week that that doesn't happen nowadays. We're just talking about biblical times. There's never conflict between the church and the church leaders. It just doesn't exist. Sense my sarcasm. And last week we established that grumbling, Paul actually groups in together with sexual immorality, that you grumble, it's the same as cheating on your spouse. And, and I got a few emails about that, um, but I won't retract it because it's what the Bible says. But we don't like it. And so Paul has to be careful who he sends to this church because there's conflict brewing, and only a certain type of person would be able to deal with this kind of conflict. If that person is self-centered, they would have their own agenda and they would not be able to deal with this properly. And Paul says that Timothy genuinely cares about others. Now, that would insinuate that others do not genuinely, others in ministry do not genuinely care about others. Timothy, he says, is truly concerned for the well-being of others. He's a compassionate servant who loves the church. I want you to see all these connections because he's speaking to how we live. He's a humble servant who loves the church. Like Paul, Timothy has a concern for the health of churches. In other words, Timothy doesn't just go, yeah, churches are a mess and I'm just going to get out. Forget, you ever felt like that? I'll admit that. Where you're just like, seriously? Like churches get nowhere. They, they, I talked last week about the thousand, 3,000 people in the church. Uh, it's probably sitting in, probably less than that because it's July. So it's probably around 2,000 people sitting in church in Norfolk County. There's 65,000 people live here. Why do we think we're doing well? Now, Timothy holds this deep compassion for the church that Paul also holds. This is key. As a Christian, as a Christ follower, we're called to hold this deep compassion for the calling of the church. In 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, he says, besides everything else, Paul's talking about himself, I face daily the pressures of my concern for all the churches. This is something that Timothy shares with him. He claims that Timothy shares this burden. He gets that the church matters and having a love and compassion for the church is part of the posture of humility that is needed to serve Christ and to serve others. This is our living example of everything he's been teaching us. And notice what Paul does in verse 20 and 21 in this passage. He says, I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare, for everyone looks out for their own interests, not for those of Jesus Christ. Timothy, folks, will show genuine concern for their welfare, and many others wouldn't. Instead, they have their own interests in mind. Timothy has their interests and specifically Christ's interests in mind. In other words, folks, it's not about him It's about Christ, and this is the posture that we have to take as human beings in order to love the church, in order to love others with a genuine heart. 
Now, this, this is a key character trait that has to do with living out our salvation. Having the interests of Christ and others in mind before your own interests. Isn't this drastically countercultural, folks? Like, we're li- quite literally in our culture taught to be self centered first. Look after yourself first. Look after your interests first. Don't then worry about others. Like, I've heard people say, I need to get rich before I can give. Because then I can give more. What a, what a backwards way of thinking about the world. That's not others-centered, that's self-centered. And often, our others-centered thinking is in fact self-centered. Our willingness to reach out to the poor and to the impoverished is actually about us and not about others. And Paul recognizes this. We don't do anything for our benefit We do everything for others instead of self. That's tough, isn't it? And next Paul says this, but you know that, this is verse 22 and 23, but you know that Timothy has proved himself. There's something about actually living this and proving that it's consistent in your life. And he's saying that that's a trait that Timothy has. He's proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. Listen to elsewhere how Paul talks a little bit about Timothy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, he says this to the Corinthian church, For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love. Now, when I did some research on Timothy, Paul is not Timothy's father. Actually, Timothy's mother is a Jew and Timothy's father is a Gentile. (gasps) Like, doesn't that actually just disqualify him to even be in the gospel? Some of our theology would say yes. He says, but I know... Sorry, for that reason I sent you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remain with he will, will remain you remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees that what with what I teach everywhere in every church. In 2 Timothy, a book actually addressed to Timothy, he says to Timothy, my dear son. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. To Paul, Timothy was not just a volunteer or an employee in his ministry or his organization. He is like Paul's son. He's been a faithful companion. He's traveled with Paul. He's suffered alongside Paul, all for the sake of the gospel. And to Paul... It's that longevity, it's that walking side by side through difficult times together that make him worthy of being the one who is sent to go deal with these issues. 
You can read about that a little bit in the book of Acts, specifically Acts 16 and Acts 17, which show different examples of Paul and Timothy's relationships. And so Paul will be sending Timothy, his spiritual son, his companion, his fellow servant in the gospel. And then it says, but, remember the buts in the Bible. The buts in the Bible really matter. Buts are important. But, Paul isn't sending Timothy right away. He's sending Epaphroditus. Now, wait a minute. Didn't they send Epaphroditus? Now, why is Paul sending Epaphroditus back? In verse 25, he says, but I think it is necessary. So he unpacks this. To send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier. My brother, my co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. Now, according to chapter 4 in Philippians, which we haven't gotten to yet, but I'll let you in on a secret, which I've already told you about, Epaphroditus was brought, was sent to bring financial help to Paul who was in prison. The church probably expected him to stay and to also minister to Paul. But Paul tells them that he's sending him back because he had fallen ill. Now, it's interesting in this passage because Paul stresses that he wants the church to welcome him back and honor him. Why would Paul need to say this? It's like we send Doug out on a mission, and Doug gets uh, to the mission, but along the way he gets sick, and so now I'm going to send Paul back because he's come to give me money because I'm in prison, which could become realistic someday. Why on earth would I need to write to you folks to welcome Doug back with open arms? That makes no sense. You sent Doug to me in the first place. So these nuances are really important. There's a reason that Paul is stressing this. One, Paul stresses that he wants them to honor him, but he also wants to send him back because he didn't want the additional stress of keeping him in Rome. Epaphrodite is is sick, and Paul is stressed out about the fact that he's sick and he's having to care for him. But I want you to notice here the emphasis in the text on honor. Now, we need to go back several thousand years into the past in order to understand what is actually happening here. It's probably due to the fact that their culture is based more on honor and shame than our culture would be today. We're definitely still based on shame, but we don't care much about honor. That's true. They cared greatly about honor. And so we have to understand that Epaphroditus got sick, and so to the church, there's actually a chance that they would actually be upset with Epaphroditus because he wasn't able to stay and minister to Paul. By Paul sending him back, there was this risk of the church feeling like the honor was thrown out and that they are shamed now as a church because Epaphroditus wasn't able to live out the mission to its fullest. You've got to transform yourself into their culture 
at their time. And that's why Paul would have had to say to them, you need to actually understand what has happened here with Epaphroditus and you need to honor him. He did successfully live his mission. Yes, he brought Paul the money, but he became sick and couldn't minister to him and they would have saw this as a failure. So Paul lays a foundation in his letter for the church to honor Epaphroditus instead of shaming him. In order to do this, Paul mentions five descriptions of him that underscore his character and partnership. We're just going to look at three. Can I get an amen? First of all, this is again important. Paul's dealing with a cultural nuance here. He calls him brother. Now, Often, I hear it all the time, drives me crazy. Hey, brother, right? My brothers and sisters in Christ, my brother. I don't know why I went Southern there. (laughs) It was kind of like a hillbilly, like Alabama Southern though. But anyway, um, I I use brother when I forget your name. (laughs) In our culture, what does that mean? Not much. In their culture, it recognizes him as family in Christ. Now, we, we would say it does with us too, except that do we really treat one another like actual family? You see, our culture is about our family, and then our church family is somewhere out here on the peripheral. You ever notice that? Sundays, family time. What family are you spending time with? You give us an hour and a half, depending how long I preach, And then what? You go to your family. But you got to understand that the way that they looked at this, when Paul says, my brother, he's recognizing him as his direct family. This term, it just isn't like that in culture. Essentially, it represents our identity in Christ as family. Now, in the Greek text, it's actually an extremely affectionate word. Hey, guys, when you, when you put your arm around and say, hey, brother, you're being extremely affectionate if Paul was to hear you. But we don't look at it that way, right? We use it because we forgot your name. It's not just about our identity in Christ. It's also a way to show deep affection for another. And so it's not this passing, you're my brother in Christ. It's you're my family. You're my brother. I would take a bullet for you. I would die for you because we are directly now connected because we are in Christ together. Don't lose that tone in this text because it helps you a lot. Now, he also calls him a co-worker and fellow soldier. Now, we're Anabaptists, so the whole soldier thing sets us off, right? No, because most of us aren't actually Anabaptists. But Paul also calls Epaphroditus a co-worker, a fellow soldier. This is recognizing, again, we got to go back thousands of years. This is recognizing that they are equals in the gospel. So Paul is essentially saying, Epaphroditus, folks, welcome him back because it's no different than me coming to you. He is my equal in the gospel. He is my brother in Christ. 
They'd been at spiritual war together and developed the kind of friendship. That's the the picture that he's giving us. The kind of friendship that only those who have experienced challenges together can actually have. You ever been through something with somebody and noticed that it draws you closer together? Maybe it's been your direct family, and as a family, you've been through things together. What Paul's saying, a co-worker and fellow soldier, is that they've been through stuff together, and they've persevered together, and they're family, and it's brought them close together. There's a real intimacy here in this text. And now Paul moves away in verse 26 from their personal relationship with Epaphroditus and into his character. So he gives them a nuance about this personal relationship because he doesn't want them to think he failed. In Philippians 2.26, now he switches to how Epaphroditus is thinking. It says, For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Now Epaphroditus was concerned for his church because he knew that they would be worried about him, and he was worried about what they thought of him. Do you see the humanness in this? Here's Epaphroditus, brings money to the Apostle Paul, who's in prison. He falls ill, not by his own fault, but then because of his culture, Because he fell ill, he feels like the church is now going to look down on him. And so now he's worried that there's some people that are worried about his well-being, and so he's worried that they're worried. And then there's some people who are, are concerned that he wasn't able to live out the mission, and so he's worried about what people think of him. Like, these are regular human beings living life. And this is what Paul's teaching us is that this is, these are people who are living their faith each and every day, and they worry about stuff. Now, the Greek word that, is, that we translate as distressed in this passage is actually the exact same word that is described Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Changes things, doesn't it? It's the exact descriptive word that he is distressed. This is a big deal. He's worried about his church, and his family back at the church. And I mean family, the church. It's a word that shows great anguish and shows how Epaphroditus is more concerned about his fellow believers and his mission than he is about his own health. This is the kind of love that points people to Jesus, folks. And it's a huge character trait that all Christians are called to. We don't, we don't know in this passage how sick he was, but what we do know is that he was sick enough that Paul felt that it was a miracle that he lived. And because of this, Paul says that he's eager to send Epaphroditus back to them so that they can have peace. Paul wouldn't have to worry about him. The church would know he's all right, and Epaphroditus wouldn't have to worry about the Philippians anymore. It's just basic wisdom what Paul's doing here. Now, I took a step back because I was, I was really pondering, like, what do I do with this? <laughs> well, how, do, how do you preach this text? And 
I, I drew out two very specific things that as I was reflecting and praying on this, what do I learn from the life of Epaphroditus? Okay, I'm seeing humility. I'm seeing great care for others. I'm seeing this passion for the church. But what are the principles that we can actually begin to live, that we can draw from this text? So I'm going to give you two. The first is serving Jesus and others will cost us, but it's worth it. They journeyed together. They were soldiers together. Living our lives in Christ, serving Jesus will cost you. I don't know why our culture has developed this sort of faith structure that says that being a Christian is all about awesomeness. Like, I would never sell it to my friends that way. I've shared with you that coming to Christ completely ruined my life. Now, what I mean by that is my worldly sense of life, meaning I could be much more prosperous if I did something different. If I lived a different path, in the worldly sense, I would have more stuff. I'd probably have a bigger house. I'd still drive a Honda. (laughs) Serving Jesus and others will cost us. I guarantee you, if it hasn't cost you, maybe you need to question your servanthood. I don't know. That's between you and God, you and the Holy Spirit. But I can tell you, it's worth it. The call to serve others and Christ takes us outside of ourselves. And this is what changes us. It usually means some suffering, but it is exactly what draws us closer to Christ. And that is Paul's theological thinking. That suffering is what strips away self and gets you ready to actually serve Jesus. And so it's worth it. And the other is deep relationships are formed when, you're on a mis- when you are on mission with other brothers and sisters. You see, we're made for relationship, but not superficial relationships. She talked about, uh, Catherine talked about introverts. A lot of people are surprised to hear that I actually test as an introvert. Just because I can turn on seeming like I'm an extrovert doesn't mean I like it. But when we're on mission together, And we develop a non-superficial relationship. You see, the thing that introverts hate is small talk. I can't stand the, how's your day going? Well, the weather is interesting. What's this? It drives me, I'm just, ugh. Carrie can do it, so I bring her with me (laughs) everywhere we go, because I just can't stand it. But if you want to talk about Christology, let's go. I'm in. I'm going to stay for hours. Or sodiology, right? Big fancy theological words. In other words, if you want to talk about Jesus, let's talk. Superficial relationships never get to knowing who a person is. And so you never truly live on mission together and never become brothers and sisters in Christ because everything's superficial. Or everything is about what you might receive. But non-superficial relationships are the kind that unite us into a gospel-centered partnership. 
The gospel, folks, is what brings us together and unites us. Not just agreeing and hanging out together, but being on a mission together with the same purpose. We can hang out together, we can surface talk, we can do all of those things, but if we don't share the same purpose together, we never begin to merge together as family that's been soldiers together. And so deep relationships are formed when you're on mission with other brothers or sisters. If you're not on mission, you will not develop those relationships. Timothy and Epaphroditus and Paul give us living examples of what community and following Jesus looks like in real life. They lived what Paul said, do nothing out of selfish ambition, Philippians 2, 3 to 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. If you're one of those people that says, the Bible says, and you use that phrase to beat down people, I would like to use this phrase to beat you down. I mean that in love. But if you're going to be one of those people, you need to do the whole Bible. Actually, Paul says that. If you're going to live your life by the law, you've got to live by every nook and cranny of it, not just some of it. So what I would challenge you folks is to live this verse. To take yourself outside of selfish ambition or vain conceit. If you like to be noticed, stop being noticed. In humility, value others above yourselves. Do you know what that means? It means that life becomes really difficult because people are diverse. And it takes deep humility to love diverse people. It's easier to love people who are just like us. Look around the room. Do you see much diversity here? I would say yes and no. pretty one-sided when it comes to some things. And that's something that happens naturally in our cultures. But both of these followers of Christ, they did crazy things in the name of caring for others. And they didn't need credit for it. They didn't need to be noticed. They knew where the credit came from, and that was in the cross of Jesus Christ. Folks, what this passage teaches us is very, very simple. Timothy and Epaphroditus and Paul are showing you the character of Jesus Christ lived out in everyday life, in the messiness of a broken world, and the whole formula to finding joy, to finding life in Christ, to finding fellowship is to be others-centered instead of self-centered. This isn't a crazy formula. It didn't take me years of theological study to land at do everything, do nothing, sorry, out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. There it is. Check your motives. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. 
not looking to your own interests, but each to you, to the interests of others, each of you. Following Jesus means this. The worship team can join me. Following Jesus means we give up our rights and we become others-centered instead of self-centered. I've gotten emails about that too, the giving up our rights because we've come to Christ. I'm sorry that that's against American constitutional rights. But when you're in Christ, he is your Lord and you have given up your rights to have rights. It's another one of those moments the Bible says. This is the, the difference that the church makes in the world if it's living on mission. It's different because it's centered on others instead of self. Here's the big idea. The gospel calls us to follow the ways of Jesus. This means... We let go of our selfish ambition and in humility begin to value others above ourselves. Isn't this what Jesus did on the cross? He gave up his life so that we could have life. And we are called as the church to follow Jesus. And following Jesus means we live our lives the way Jesus lived his, which means we are willing to give up our lives for the sake of someone else. That's the love that Paul talks about in his letters. And joy begins with Jesus, then others, then yourself. And so if you're trying to find joy in self-centered things, you will be nothing but seeking joy the rest of your life. But if you're willing to take a step back and center your life in Christ and put others at the forefront of your mission, value mission together as community, you live in this abundant joy that Paul talks about that he has even when he's in the midst of prison.